Well, tonight, if you turn to 2 Kings, we'll be beginning, we'll be beginning chapter 9. We'll look at the first 15 verses. We're going to kind of stop in the middle of this event, a very important and historic event in the northern kingdom of Israel. And as we think of history, I want to remind you that sometimes we just desire to be a part of history. Uh, growing up being interested in athletics and sports and all those things, I loved to play basketball, I loved to follow baseball and then play all those other sports that you play with others in, uh, as a young man. I often remember the times in championship matches or bowl games or very important uh, as sports or athletes uh, seem to think, who would sometimes speak of wanting to be a part of history. Now, it's sports history. As a young person, you think that's a big part of life. But you know sports is a small part of life. And it's a relatively new phenomenon in human civilization. And really, is being a part of sports history really much history at all? What about being a part of the Exodus? Or being a part of the building of the temple? Or perhaps one of God's great deliverances in the Old Testament, perhaps a member of the choir when Jehoshaphat placed the choir in front of his army and God delivered the people of Judah. What about being a part of that history? But you know we're all a part of history, but what part and who is behind it all? I think that's what we find out from these sections and slices of 2 Kings. Here is one of them, a man by the name of Jehu is entering the picture, but he's not been named for the first time in 2 Kings 9, as we'll find out. So then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants the prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow and his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, 
Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then, in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth Gilead against Haziel, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel by the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. So Jehu said, If this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. As we consider this reading of God's word, which shall stand forever, let's bow briefly in prayer. Lord, this is your word. It contains things by your Holy Spirit that are good for us, good for us to hear, good for us to grow in grace, good for us to know by your grace. Lord, teach us tonight by your Spirit, giving us ears to hear it and hearts to understand it. Lord, I pray that you give us an attitude, all of us, good thoughts, pleasing in your sight. And Lord, give my words a consistency with your own, or let them pass away, never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We know you can take a seemingly random person. Take, for example, a seemingly random woman among an oppressed people group. Put her in a beauty pageant where she wins the heart of the king. You know who I'm talking about. Esther in the scriptures. Now put her cousin and father figure near the courts of that same king where he is despised by powerful men, but he happens to hear an assassination plot against the king. And the king rewards him mightily. Mordecai another figure in biblical history. And then the famous words that Mordecai would say to Esther that would rock her world. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Could Esther, or Hadassah as her name was before she became known as Esther, could she have imagined as a little girl the events that would shape her life could she imagine that God would use her, of all people, to risk her life before a pagan king who happened to be her husband in order to save the entire people of Israel in her day? Of course not. She didn't know that. But God raises up his own people and his own instruments to conduct his story, or as we say in English, history. This is one of those times we have a very interesting time period. We're going to learn a lot about Jehu over the next couple weeks. But here we're reminded of these historic missions of, in this case, a nameless prophet. Now, of course, we're also going to see there are named prophets involved as well. But this is a historic mission that God gives to a nameless prophet. It's a historic mission of a timeless God who is involved in these circumstances. And it's also a historic mission that he's given to what the world would call mad men. So here we are, 
the historic mission to a nameless prophet. We know the first name here, Elisha. He's one of the great historical figures of all the Old Testament. One of those prophets where we see amazing miracles and amazing things done in the name of God. And of course, the one that preceded him, Elijah, who was called to do amazing things, even to stand up alone among all the prophets of all the pagan gods around them, hundreds of prophets, and see God win the day by bringing fire on the mountain. We know about Elisha, and we know about Elijah. When Elisha calls this nameless prophet, the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, the word for sons can mean young servant, young man of the prophets, and he gives him a mission. He says, tie up your garments, take this flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. And when you first read that, you say, what, what is going on here? You, you, why aren't you going, Elisha? That's a question we won't have answered by this particular text. But we do know this. This is based on an old revelation. This is not something that's new. In fact, we looked at that a little bit when he was dealing with Damascus and Hazael, who would become king and assassinate his master, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. You see, what was taking place was Elisha was carrying out his last mission, so to speak, here in this particular thing, carrying out the mission of Elijah way back in 1 Kings 19 when Elijah was down in the dumps and was depressed. God told him to get up and go do the work that I assigned to you, and he called him to do three things. The first thing he called him to do was to anoint Hazael, the king of Syria. Second thing he said was to anoint Jehu, the king of Israel. And the third thing he said to do was to anoint Elisha, the prophet who would replace him. Well, in God's providence, God took him up into heaven before he carried out all three aspects of that mission. And yet this double portion of Elijah's spirit that was placed on Elisha was such that Elisha would be the one to carry out the other two things. He'd already anointed Hazael, king of Syria and Damascus, now here in chapter 9, through this nameless prophet, denoted by the place and circumstances of what's taking place. Notice here he's going to the place of Ramoth Gilead. And that particular town has been referenced throughout this section of Scripture. This is the place of war. This is the place where Israel and Syria were battling against one another. This is the place where we're reminded that this Hazael now is ruler over Syria, and he particularly will do wicked and terrible things to the people of Israel. But it reminds us of the second part of the mission that he was to carry out, and that is this. This revelation delivered initially to Elijah in the place and circumstances of God's historic mission, is now to be carried out through Elisha by this nameless prophet. But even though it's an old revelation, it is new in this. 
It is new to the people who experience it. It is a new king, a new line in which God is going to give us a new king in Israel. But notice this. This new line is very clear. In case you ever wonder if God's word is not clear in this place, it definitely is, isn't it? In case you didn't know who was to be the next king, he says, look for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. There's no mistaking the identity of this recipient. And in fact, it wasn't a mistake at all. Way back in Elijah's ministry, it was very clear that this was to be Jehu, the son of Nimshi, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. In fact, here, there's no mistaking this identity of the new king. There's also no mistaking the message of the revelation. What does Elisha tell this guy? Take this juglet of oil. Take it with you. Take this guy into the inner chamber and pour it on his head. Why would you pour oil on somebody's head? Well, it wasn't just to, to say, well, we want you to get better from some illness. Or it wasn't just to make them smell better. It was to anoint them. And, and what would better understand this than the words that accompany it? Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. There's no mistaking the message of this revelation. And then why open the door and flee without lingering? There's, there's no lingering in one sense because this might be dangerous. You know, there's another king out there. His name is Joram. He's one of the sons of Ahab. And you have Omri and Ahab and his first son that reigned. Uh, that only lasted a year, Ahaziah. And then Ahaziah's brother Joram, he's now the king. They're all wicked kings. You know, this is the house of Ahab and Jezebel. Things aren't looking too well in Israel. They committed more wickedness than all the other kings before them, Scripture says. So in one sense, he's protecting this nameless young man. On the other hand, there's no lingering to confuse the issue. One commentator writes on this particular passage, I think it's Keel or Delich from the 19th century, says they don't linger because they don't want to have a discussion to confuse the issue here. It's just do the deed. And run away. Isn't it interesting, though, how God uses nameless people to do this? Elijah didn't do this. He commanded one of the young prophets in his prophet school to do this. In fact, it doesn't tell us anywhere in this entire passage who this guy is. And this is consistent with God's work through history. Some of the most important figures throughout history are those that never are given a name in Scripture. It doesn't mean that he didn't have one. We just don't know who he was. And I thought, isn't that true about God's work in history? You know, I thought here, preparing for this message about one of the great theologians in all of history, his name was Athanasius. Athanasius, way back in the 4th century, was from Alexandria in Egypt. In fact, he's known as Athanasius of Alexandria. He was a, a tremendous theologian who has influence on the church from the 4th century until the present. In fact, he helped develop some of our understanding of what the Bible teaches about the divinity of Christ conquering the Arian controversy in the church and about the divinity of the Holy Spirit and the development of the theme of the Trinity and what that means. Athanasius was very instrumental in conquering the heresies of the day and developing the doctrines 
of the faith that we hold so dear. And the very basics of faith in the early church. But do you ever wonder who led Athanasius to faith or shared the gospel with him? We may never know in history. We may never know until we get to heaven. When we get to heaven, we may not care. Who knows? But have you ever wondered all these nameless people that these major figures in church history gave the gospel to these figures? God's history marches on through the nameless. Here's a guy just going about his everyday activity, serving Elisha and being one of the school of prophets. And one day, Elisha calls him out and says, I want you to go in this historic moment and anoint the next king of Israel. And he does. In fact, verse 4 says, So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. Is it, wouldn't it be so, so wonderful if all of us were so obedient to God's word? For God just tells us what to do, and so we do it. So here he goes. He goes to Ramoth Gilead. He goes to this place where they're guarding against the enemy, Syria. When he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. They're having a, a council meeting of the army officers here. And he basically says, Commander Jake, who's the, the chief officer in charge of the army, he says, I want a private meeting with you. In fact, Elisha was very clear to take him into the inner chamber. It's kind of funny, the word here for inner chamber is actually the inner chamber of the inner chamber. It was a very secret place, dark. And it says here, they came to that place. He arose, went into the house. The young man poured the oil on his head and said to him, the words that Elisha told him to say, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people, the Lord over Israel. Here's a private anointing. Nobody else present, just the young man, the prophet, and Jehu. And notice what it says here, the words, thus says the Lord. This isn't this guy doing this thing. This isn't Elisha doing this thing. This is the word of God. When God speaks, his words are so very important. God can speak a whole world into existence. God can speak, and things can change in a heartbeat. And when God speaks to his people, we must listen. The other thing he says here is who he says. Who he says anoints you king over the people of Israel. I, I being the Lord, thus says the Lord of God, God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. This was not something in which Jehu was just going to take things into his own hands. This was not just an idea that Elijah had to change the political scheme of Israel. Uh, this wasn't anything except God's direction and God's direction for Israel. But notice this. Some people will say, well, the prophet here went beyond the words of Elisha. But it's unclear whether or not Elisha told him these words to give as well, and perhaps they weren't recorded earlier in the chapter, or whether or not this man received new revelation as a prophet in the school of prophets. Whatever the case, he is given this new revelation to give according to the words given to Elijah earlier in 1 Kings 19, 21, and 22. And he says this, you shall, that is Jehu, you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master. And here's why. It's because of divine judgment. You shall do it because 
here so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. It's a divine judgment on the house of Ahab. Ahab's entire house, from Omri to Ahab to Ahaziah to Joram and all of the household. In fact, we're even told that some of the household in those days were counselors that, that led the king of Judah astray, the son of Jehoshaphat. Here it is, all of them will have the judgment of God meted down upon them. Why? Because God is jealous for his people. It says to avenge the blood of the prophets. The house of Ahab had killed many of the prophets of God. As Jezebel lifted up the prophets of Baal, the gods of the Sidonians and her people, the gods of the Canaanites, they had abused persecuted, even killed some of the prophets of God. It was to avenge the blood not only of the prophets, but of all the servants of God. You can imagine if the prophets were being killed or persecuted, then the people who assisted the prophets, even people like the one who hid a hundred prophets in caves, he too was persecuted to avenge all the blood that was shed by Ahab's house, divine judgment would come upon people through the hand of Jehu on the house of Ahab. Here he says, for eight, verse 8, For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebad, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. You know, the sad thing here. There's special mention, if you hadn't noticed, in verse 10 about Jezebel. Jezebel is mentioned here because of her wickedness and her being complicit in the deeds of Ahab and even leading him astray to worship false gods. And these words too, and the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel and none shall bury her. This too is prophesied to Elijah in 1 Kings, chapters 21 and 22. But notice this divine judgment also uh, gives a comparison, a comparison to the house of Jeroboam and the house of Basha. Why these houses? Because they too were kings of Israel. Jeroboam was the one who introduced idol worship, saying that there were gods calves, golden calves that he had made, and he said, these calves are the ones who delivered you out of Egypt in the Exodus. And the reason why he wanted to do that is he was jealous that the people of Israel would go down to Judah, to Jerusalem, to worship the true God. And rather than that happen, he developed his whole religious system. And even to the days of the New Testament, the people that lived in that area became known as Samaritans. They were all historically from the people in Elijah's day, even to the people of Jesus' day, the people living in that territory, being syncretistic in their religion. And Jeroboam's house was completely destroyed. Basha, too, another evil king, who was among those who assassinated the king who was there. Even though the king he assassinated was evil as well, Basha's whole house was destroyed. Not one person was left. This historic mission was of a timeless God. Why do I say timeless? It's because of this. You have to go back. You have to go way back 
to 1 Kings 19, 21, and 22 to hear these words of judgment against Ahab. Here is Ahab committing these evil atrocities. Then his son Ahaziah becomes king. He rules for a year. Then his son Joram becomes king. Joram lives for a number of years. Where is God's judgment coming from? In all this time, we're reminded that when God says there is judgment, he will do it in his timing, won't he? You know, it's hard to be patient. I can imagine the people of Israel who had these wicked kings. There were righteous people who lived in Israel. Some of those righteous people through the years would journey down to Jerusalem to worship the true God. You can imagine what they felt when they heard the words of judgment, but then they saw that God said to Elijah, by the way, there was a time here I see Ahab was repentant and humble, so I won't do this in his lifetime. I will do it during his son's lifetime. And imagine... The intake of breath, another, how many years of Ahab and Jezebel do we have to suffer through? It's hard for mothers to be patient, who pray for decades, like St. Augustine's mother, praying for the salvation of Augustine for year after year after year, wondering if God would answer that prayer that their children might respond to the gospel. Wives have wondered for years that their husbands would be won to Christ through their respectful and pure conduct, as Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter 3. But just as we're impatient sometimes to see somebody come to Christ, if that's God's design, if they're truly a member of God's elect, so too judgment is one of those things that sometimes is a long time. That's why Peter says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. He wasn't talking about creation. He wasn't talking about the promises of grace. He was talking about judgment. He said, judgment is coming, and some people are saying everything goes as it has before, but God is really not going to judge us. But Peter is reminding them with that phrase that God will bring judgment in his time, in his way. From our perspective, he is a timeless God. The historic mission here of Jehu going to conquer the house of Ahab was a long time coming. But this historic mission was by a God who keeps his word. Divine judgment was coming. But what about the people he uses? Historically, in this passage, we see again and again that they're described as madmen. The first madman that's described here is the prophet that was sent, the young man. You know, here's the guy, he comes in, jumps the oil on Jehu, says what he needs to say, and runs out the door. And the people there, the officers, when Jehu comes back, they ask, is all well? Is there peace? And they said, why did this mad fellow come to you, this crazy guy? So here is the first madman. And this is typical of God's prophets. They were madmen, according to the world. God's madmen, the prophets. These prophets do crazy things. They go around without clothes on in some cases. They, they marry unworthy women. Uh, they, they go out and lay on their side for a year at a time. Uh, they do strange and bizarre behavioral type things. People would consider them certifiably insane. And so when they see what this guy does, they, they think, well, this is typical of the prophets. And so they say, 
you know the fellow. In other words, they, they knew somehow he was a prophet by his actions or by his identity. Perhaps they associated him with the school of prophets. Perhaps there was some uh, you know, marker that, hey, I come from Elisha, wherever it is. They say, you know this fellow. And then they say this, you know his babble. Here's what they say. Prophets, you, you can't understand what they're saying. They speak in riddles. They, they just say stuff we can't possibly understand. And I have to say, when you read through Daniel and Ezekiel and some of the prophets, you really have to figure out what they say. It sounds all mixed up and crazy sometimes, doesn't it? They say, you know, his bad boy's a madman. God uses madmen to give the world his word. But here's the king's madmen. Here is... King Joram's madmen, the army officers. Here's what they say. They say, it's not true what you tell us. Tell us now. He said, thus and so he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. The king's madmen, the army officers, they're ready. They're ready for a new revelation. Even though Jehu has said, you know who, who this madman man the prophet is you know how they talk and all this they say but we really want to know why did they want to know they were ready for a new revelation from God it doesn't mean they believed in God but they were ready for something new something different remember who their master was Ahab the wicked king Joram the wicked son of the wicked king but they're also ready for a new king you realize how strange this is? When they hear the words, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Jehu, we don't know how he's describing this. He may be describing, hey, this madman came. Can you believe he actually said this? And their reaction is this. They take off their garment and they put it on the steps. What does that mean? Well, it means they're, they're treating him as royalty, that he would walk over their garments. They're... they're placing before him a path of royal design. And then they're blowing the shofar or the trumpet and proclaiming Jehu is king. Here they are in Ramoth Gilead and next to a battle that could take place at any moment, preparing and talking about all the things that take place among our army intelligence officers. And here they pause, blow the trumpet, Proclaim the kingdom belongs to Jehu and place down the garments so that Jehu can walk across them. How mad is that in the midst of an army ready to do battle? But perhaps even more mad is King Jehu. After all, he's the guy who's been anointed king. He has obviously some gifts and talents. He's become the chief of the army. He's respected and he's someone who is now entrusted with the kingdom as far as the army goes. And here's what he does. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. This is conspiracy during a war under a ruthless, wicked king who could take you out at any moment. But he does it. Then he says at the end of this, if this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. The conspiracy heads off to the resting place, the recovery, recuperation center of Joram, who's been wounded in battle against Syria, and he's off to fight the battle. 
We're going to see that he's also called a madman by the royal family next week. But I thought about madmen. This prophet's called a madman. I'm told now that with my son in the army, I'm told that if you say that he's part of army intelligence, that it's a joke. Because what army officers are intelligent? We see that the people of God are called crazy. We read earlier from the testimony that the Apostle Paul gave to Festus while he was in chains and to King Agrippa. And they thought he was crazy. They said, you're out of your mind, you're insane. You know, this is the theme of our family. When we get together and we see some crazy things that take place in our family, we tell each other we know that we're all crazy. We're the crazier ones after all. When the world looks at us, they see us as crazy. I mean, who else would do things like come to church twice on Sundays? Uh, who, who else would have limits given to our children of how much electronics they should use during a day? How many people would actually do things and claim that the scripture is true, even the parts we don't understand? Who is it that would go out and say the most important thing in the world is not power or influence or money, but is serving God? You see, we're all crazy. I hope you can have this Irwin craziness. Here it is, the prophets, why did they do these bizarre and strange things? It's because they were doing it in service to God. Christ himself was called insane. He was called mad. King David feigned madness and was called crazy by his own wife when he danced before the ark as it was taken to Jerusalem. The prophets certainly could have been considered medic medically certifiable for all the weird things they did. The foolishness of the world is told us is Christ. Yet the history of the world is God's design. I remember when we lived in a small town in Illinois. I was in high school. We lived there for the last three years of my high school. My parents lived there for another 10 years after that. It was a small town and there was a small town clinic of 350 people in the town and we had a little medical clinic there with a full-time doctor. Just happened to be placed in that town. That doctor went to our church. He had some things happen. I, I don't remember all the details. But they decided to have a this is your life presentation. So in the gymnasium of the school building, they invited all these people from his past, his friends, his co-workers, patients he had helped. Perhaps even most memorable were the family members from the Philippines that they had flown over unbeknownst to him in this moment to recognize that what he had done in that community as that doctor for many years. I can remember the days when a doctor like him sometimes would take a guy like my dad who was foolish and try to cut up a Christmas tree with a bow saw and cut in deeply into his hand and he went into the doctor's garage where he sewed him up. And I thought of all the things that that doctor did. You know, every day though, is a this is your life moment for Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of the church. And when we look at the history, the good and the bad, Jehu is not going to be the most wonderful king in the world. But you know he is going to obey God's command to give judgment to the house of Ahab. And the prophets, sometimes their bizarre behavior is such that even the prophets sometimes, we see some of them sin in amazing ways. 
And we wonder, how can they have been prophets of God sinning in these ways? And yet, the church marched on through the Old Testament pages of Scripture. Why? Because God was in charge. He's sovereign. And it was all pointing to Christ. Why is it that we can look back in history and say these moments are done with nameless people by a timeless God, with madmen doing all these things? It's because God is the God of history. It's anointed history. It's God's story. That's why it comes down to these words. Thus says the Lord. What he says goes. And we can rest comfort in knowing that God is in control. God is sovereign. And he will use the most bizarre situations, the strangest circumstances, the the most wonderfully foolish or incompetent people to accomplish his purposes that are bigger than any sports moment, any hallmark moment, any political persuasion of the day. This is God working through history. It's his plan that will succeed as the sovereign God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even these stories are not just stories, they're part of your history for your people. Lord, to remind us both of your grace and your judgment, to remind us that your promises are true, whether they are swift or whether they are slow in coming, to be reminded that whether it's someone that we have all looked up to for a generation or whether it's someone we've never known before, you can use them as instruments of your glory and your grace. We thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for your purpose which is beyond our understanding. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.